I used to think it was weird to read the prayers of dead people. Just thought it was weird. And even now, our, our care group is, is going through a study, and uh, even the, the, the pastor who's, do, who's doing the video portion of the study will pray, and I find myself just wondering, what am I supposed to do while he's praying? Because he's not really in the room, so am I to join in the prayer? And, but I think it's all right. I think we join in prayer, and I, think it's, I hope it's okay that, that I read the prayer of dead dudes, uh, because they mean a lot to me. I've started adding those to, to my morning routine. And I've been reading this book, Prayers from a Book Called Piercing Heaven, and it's uh, prayers of the Puritans. And sometimes we have this idea of the Puritans as this, these stick-in-the-mud type of people that straight-laced and like may, maybe they're a little bit legalistic, but if you get to know the Puritans a little bit, you know that that's not them. It may have seemed like that to the outsiders, but they found their freedom in Christ. So that what, what other people thought about them, they didn't really care because they were firmly planted in Christ and what he said of them and who they were in him, not what the world said. I mean, that's something that we should want as well, uh, to be firmly rooted in Jesus. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was reading, uh, and there was a prayer that was titled, Give Us Nobler Minds. And I thought it was very relevant uh, to, to what we are talking about in this study of Titus. So I'd like to start off our time our preaching time of worship together uh, by, by praying the prayer uh, of Philip Doddridge from hundreds of years ago uh, that he prayed uh, to his father. So if you would, join me in prayer. Father God, have pity on us, O oh Lord, upon our weaknesses, and, and give us a better mind to understand the true sense of your word. Give us a simplicity of heart to receive it, and integrity to declare it, and a zeal to teach and defend it. And while we're doing so, or while we're doing any other work that you've assigned us, wherever you place us in life, whatever difficulties may surround us, whatever sorrows may depress us, let us with pleasure hear you proclaiming, Behold, I come quickly. I come to end the labor and the suffering of my servants. I come, and my reward of grace is with me to reward every work of faith and labor of love. Let us hear you say that you are coming to receive your faithful, persevering people to yourself, to dwell forever in that blissful world where knowledge, holiness, and joy will be poured in upon our souls in a more immediate, nobler, and more effectual manner. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Hasten the blessed hour to us, to all your churches. And in the meantime, May your grace be with us to keep us alive, to keep alive the remembrance of your love and the expectation of your coming in our hearts. Animate us to be and act in a way that honors the blessings we have already received and the nobler joy you have taught us to seek. In your son's name, amen and amen. I find those words beautiful and encouraging. And even though they were written a couple centuries ago, they still are relevant to today. Same thing is true with the words of Titus, written thousands of years ago, but they're still relevant today. So let's go back and rewind just a little bit. Why Titus? Why in 2021 do we focus on these 46 verses, this letter written from an ancient uh, church planner to an ancient pastor to an ancient church or group of churches? Why do we do that? Well, there's one phrase that I've heard over and over and over over the last couple of years that I just want to return to normal. 
And church, I want you to sort of scratch that from your vernacular. I want us to, I hope we never return to normal in the sense of how we were doing church before. And the complacency at times that we had as, as not just a body of believers, but the church across the world, specifically in the West, in the United States, in North America. Man, I hope we never return to that. I, I hope we, 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 I, we see the, the need for the gospel now, to infect and affect the world around us. And I pray we never tend to focus more on ourselves again than we do those who are not here. That we are a committed and a focused church. That to the best of our abilities, we are throwing off anything that hinders us from chasing after the mission that God has placed on his body, on the church. That we are able to rise above the confusion and speak truth. That we are adorning the word of God in everything that we do. And to help us do that as we strive to live individual godly lives and corporately as a church of godly lives, I pray that we're able to lean in to teachers like the Apostle Paul, that we're able to see and we're able to feel and believe the truth that he gives us in these words. And that's why we look at the letter of Titus in 2021, is because the church desperately needs to realize that she has been given basically a blank slate on how she does ministry, on how she operates, and gives us a realization that the world around us is seeking truth, seeking answers. And church, we have the answers. We have the truth. And never before has it been easier for us to get that truth to the masses who so desperately need Jesus Christ. Eternity hangs in the balance. And whether we realize that or not, whether we accept that or not, whether we recognize that or not, eternity hangs in the balance. And we've seen far too frequently over the last months and years that we simply do not know how long we have on this planet. And our eternity hangs in the balance. And we should not be content just to sit in our own salvation, but to want to share the source of that salvation with anybody that we possibly can. And that's why we turn to Titus. And that's why several weeks ago we started by, by just reading this entire letter. It took us all of seven minutes to read it. And, and we see Paul's letter to Titus and his words to the church. And then the week after that, we looked at who Paul was. And we saw this man who was passionately and committedly dedicating his life and these words to the local churches. And that we should step into that. that. That he was a man who wanted to see God's chosen come to maturity in faith. And to live godly lives in the face of a, a culture that needed God in them. And then uh, two weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at what Crete looked like. And we looked at, at just how the, the decadence uh, and the, the immorality and the sexual immorality that, in, that, in, that was uh, prime on this small island, right? Not that big of an island. What do we say, 160 by 30? But the people who lived there, it was a do-whatever-you-want-to type of culture. Your truth is not my truth. You, you do what you want to do, I will do what I want to do. And it's sort of whatever, anything goes type of society. But we were also able to see, and through his history, the power and the transformation that the gospel made on that island. 
where 70 Christian churches then uh, were, were, uh, were strong and vibrant on, in that community, in that culture. So we see the power that the gospel can bring. And today, we're going to look at Paul's charge to that Cretan church. And it's just one verse. But it's been a while since we've read together that, that opening part of, 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 of Titus. So let's, let's read it together and stop uh, where we want to uh, pick up for today. So if you have your Bible, Titus chapter 1, let's read those first five verses together. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of, God's, uh, for the, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This, verse 5, is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to, to, to lean in and to look intently at this opening paragraph, these opening sentences of this letter. And God, today I pray that you allow us just to be open uh, to where you are leading us. God, my prayer is that I will be true to your word, that we will be open to where you are leading us, that we are more concerned with your guidelines than the world's opinions, that we are more concerned with your word than our traditions, that you just give us open ears and an open heart when we talk about something that may be touchy. And God, I just pray that you will, will allow the next few minutes for us to lean in uh, and to, to, to see and to hear, to accept you know, what you have to say through your, through your apostle. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. The first thing that Paul says when he says, set what remained in order is to appoint godly elders as I directed you. Before he gets into anything else, he talks about the importance of having the right leader, and I'm going to say the right leadership structure in place in the local churches. If you're going to rise above culture, if you're going to, 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 to proclaim, if you're going to adorn the Word of God, leadership is important. He starts there. Now, I, I wish... Right, that there was a place in Scripture that we could open up our Bible and we could turn to the book of how to do church right and go to chapter 3, verse 2 and read. But it's not there. So today, just like we did with Titus, we have to look at the entirety and a bigger block of Scripture here, specifically, specifically the New Testament Scriptures and what it says. You see, the, the dangers facing Modern congregations, and I won't even say modern, this has happened since the beginning of the time, is that we morph from what was intended to something completely different. Maybe you notice that in your own life as well, right? That, that maybe it's marriage. And when you said, I do, you had these grand ideas of what type of husband, what type of wife you were going to be. And over time, that sort of more, you morphed away from those intentions, 
Maybe when January rolls around, you make those, that, that dirty word resolution, and you say, I'm going to do this differently. And by the time January the 3rd rolls around, those intentions, those resolutions have morphed into something else. It happens in every aspect of our lives, and it happens in the church. You see, in the first century, you can go back and look at uh, the early church documents, and you can see that the first church, century church was pretty good at listening to what the apostles said and, and adopting this type of leadership. But over time, we sort of morphed. The church morphed into a state church. It was, it was run, and it was manipulated. It was, it was, it was used to, cause, to create a division between the haves and the have-nots, between the holy and those who need the holy in order to get to God. And then you see this time of Scripture where the church was reformed. We refer to it as the Reformation, where, where bold men and women stepped up and died for the sake of trying to right some things that had been terribly wrong in the church. And then you see from the Reformation until now, the church continues to morph and evolve. And it's, there's some good things in there. Like, I love the fact that we have Scott McClure, who is our, our student pastor and does so much else, and, and, and Gretchen Hammer, who is dedicated to our children and our families. And I love the fact that we have these specialized ministries. But over time, we have elevated every staff position in the church above the spiritual giftedness that the Holy Spirit has given to the entire church. And while I love my job... Well, I'm thankful that every week I get to work with Scott and with Becky and with Gretchen and with Katie and Jennifer and with the entire group, with Brian and Rebecca and Brenda. Well, I'm thankful for that. Sometimes when we do that, what we do is we create this big separation between what the individual Christian was called to be and what the church is supposed to be. Paul here in this short letter is trying as hard as he can to give us some direction back to that. For his first audience, it was, this is what you need to do. For the audience in 2021, it's, this is what you need to go back to. Now, you can say that's my opinion, but I've studied this a lot, guys. And I wouldn't stand up and share something with you that I didn't firmly believe. So here, as we look at this, I don't think we can ignore this. I don't think we can ignore the fact that he uses a word here that is a little bit foreign to us, that idea of elders. But when we ignore it and we morph into something else, there seems to be this twofold set of consequences. One is that ministry with both its privileges and its challenges has shifted to the professional staff and has robbed a lot of the body of Christ from using their abilities on a regular basis. And I also believe that the nurturing, the equipping, the discipling of believers to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in a culture that desperately needs salt and light has been, that, that need and that focus has been superseded by the, the next big event and planning for that, by the, the, the retooling of boards in order to keep things running smoothly, and by a, a jam-packed calendar. When we morph into something that we weren't intended, the consequences are there. Now, again, unfortunately, there's not a place in the Scripture that we can just turn to, and, and Paul says, here, this is all you have to do. But is that rarely the case when we open up Scripture? Think about the idea of baptism. 
There's no place that we can turn to in, in, in Scripture and learn all that we need to about baptism in one paragraph. But if we just take one verse, we miss so much of the richness of what baptism is. Like we all agree that baptism is an outward expression of what God has already done in your heart. That, 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 that is something that we can agree on. But if that's all it is, man, we are missing a lot of value and richness. Think about church membership. Think about discipleship. Think about giving. Think about raising a family. Think about being married. Think about anything. Rarely, if ever, is there a time where you can just open it up and there is everything you need to know. Would that be convenient? Yeah. But I think that would also contribute to our laziness. Because I don't think God wants us to know just a set of commands and rules. I think he wants us to know him. And the only way that we know him is by reading this book and studying it in its entirety. So when we come to something like uh, the, what, a, what the church should look like, we have to look at everything. Wasn't that beneficial for us when we looked at Titus? When we were able to see that Titus isn't some random dude that Paul just plucked out and, and stuck on the island? But when we realized that Titus was this, hey, I, Mr. Fix-It, he, he went to church in hard places and straightened it out, doesn't that make this letter more, more meaningful and more valuable to us when we realize that he was chosen specifically, strategically for that purpose? When we look at the entirety of the New Testament to see what Titus is like? Same thing is true, I believe, with the, with the church and what she is to look like. Because the church is referred to as an ecclesia, as a body of believers, as a body of Christ, as a community of saints. If we were to just take one verse about the church, we miss the richness and the fullness of what she is. And the same thing with leadership in the church. And Paul starts right here saying leaders, specifically elders, are where you should start. Now, let's look at this a little bit because if you were to do that, if you were to go this afternoon, and I encourage you to do that, and if you want my, church, my sermon notes, my message notes, just send me a text or an email after church and I will share them with you because there's a lot of scripture that we, don't, we won't spend a lot of time in today. I'm just going to reference them quickly. But if you were to go to your concordance or biblehub.com or Bible Gateway and just put an elder, it's going to give you a list of words. But there's three words in the New Testament that are used synonymously for elder. And the first one is elder. Elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros. And it's not a word that is new to Christianity. You can go to the Old Testament and you can find uh, this idea of elders. You can go to the Gospels before the Christian church was established and look and find the word elder. Now, that's not always in the best light because elders were sometimes those guys who were joining with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to try to trap Jesus. They, they were those who were trying to accuse Jesus. Uh, and elder does mean older a lot of times. But with that, don't throw that out completely, because with that comes this idea of maturity. Now, by the time the Christian church comes along, and by the time you get into Acts, and you start seeing elder appear more frequently, it has a, an idea of wisdom that comes along with it. And again, I encourage you to go and to look and to study this. I'm going to put this out here today, and next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what follows, and we're not going to talk about elder week after week after week until January 2022 rolls around. 
We're just going to set this out here, and like Joe Lizer did with food for today's uh, Discover FBCW, we're just going to let it sort of marinate for a little bit. You guys deal with that, and you, you smell the aroma, and, and have, to, have, to, have to face that for a little bit. And then we'll come back, and we'll talk about it some more. But this idea of, uh, of elder, in, in Acts chapter 11, for example, you see that the Christian elders in Jerusalem received gifts from Paul and Barnabas on behalf of other believers in Antioch. And afterwards, when Paul and Barnabas circled back uh, after they had established churches on their first missionary journey, they appointed elders in every church. You see that multiple elders were present uh, when these, or were set apart, I'm sorry, in these infant churches to, to, to make sure that things were going well. When missionaries departed, it was the elders who, who then took the reins. Peter and, and John and Paul aren't around today. This was, this was in, a, in a sense, God's success, secession plan uh, for the church. Peter, Paul, uh, not Mary, Peter, Paul, uh, Matthias, all these other guys uh, were, going to, were going to eventually die. Someone is going to need to carry on the mantle. That's what this form of leadership was for, was to carry on the mission of the local church. We, we see this in every time that is used, except when it's pointing out a specific person, that elder is in the plural. There is more than one elder in a church. Why? Two heads are better than one. Accountability comes better in a group than, than one lone ranger going by himself. Uh, elders apply authority over doctrinal issues uh, that, 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 that we see in Acts as we see in the epistles. So elder, that idea of wisdom, presbyteros, is the first word that we see for this office in the New Testament. The second one we see, along with elder, is the idea of overseer, or in some translation, bishop. Right? And, and it comes from the Greek word episkopos. And it has this sort of superintending function to it. Again, it's not a new word just to Christianity, but, but an overseer has, like, he, he's, a, he's, he's to look upon. He's to consider. He's to have regard for someone or something. He, he, he cares for others while watching over them, particularly those that are in need. In the epistles, in Paul's letters to the church and to pastors, uh, during his, his ministry in Crete, he's to appoint elders and a little bit lower, and we'll see this as we read in the coming weeks, right, that he refers to them as overseers as well. And Paul specifically addresses his letter of, um, of Philippians to, to the overseers, to the to the de and the deacons uh, in the church of Philippi. In Timothy, he gives the qualifications for elders, and one of the things he says there is for, is, uh, and in Titus, is for the qualifications of those overseers, of those elders. Paul used the verb form of overseeing as he explained the duty of elders. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is an image that I want us just to hold on to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses it when he, when he described Jesus as the shepherd and the guardian. And the word for guardian is episkopos, episkopon, right, in, in that form. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer, the episkopos of the church. And we are to imitate him. He uses this 
uh, this term over and over. So, like Christ, an overseer will watch over the spiritual gifts, the spiritual lives of those under his charge, seeking to protect them from the perils of false teaching, the deceit of sin, so that the church might be the salt and light that she needs to be in the world, so that they can proclaim loudly the message of God. So there's two, and then one more that we're familiar with, coming from a Baptist tradition, but really doesn't appear very much in Scripture. It's the word pastor, right? Poimain in the Greek. It appears only one time in its noun form. It appears several times as a verb when it talks about the role and what a pastor, what an overseer does. But the word literally means shepherd. It is someone who, who watches out. In the, the Gospels and the, in, in, in the epistles, it, was refer, it most refers to Christ as the shepherd of the flock. It served as a common epitaph on, on ancient uh, on leaders in the ancient East. In Psalm 23 and in the good shepherd motif of John chapter 10, it has this rich meaning of, of, of leading, of restoring, of guiding, uh, of protecting and providing for the sheep and calling the sheep by name, of laying down his life for the sheep, of knowing the sheep intimately. And Paul couples the term pastor in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about spiritual gifts that are given to people. And he, when, he says, uh, and he's, when he says teaching shepherds which, uh, or, or pastor teachers, and he just uses the word pastor and teach, words pastor and teacher. The nature of this term is about protecting and governing and guiding. When we read at the beginning of, of the service from, from John chapter 21, when we had this and Peter, Jesus was talking to Peter, Jesus used this term with Peter when he said, shepherd my sheep. And then the, the verb portion of this also joins elder and overseer in explaining the function of leaders of God's flock. So you have three words, which aren't really one office, but they sort of show the three, three of the main roles of what a leader, what an elder should be in the church. You have elder that has to do with that spiritual maturity of the office. Uh, you have the word overseer, which talks about the leadership and direction of the church, and the pastor, which is that idea of shepherd, of feeding the hungry, of, of nurturing and protecting the flock. Now, they're used differently throughout Scripture, not differently. They're used at different times throughout Scripture. But that's akin to you and me talking about a can of Coca-Cola. Some of us would call that pop. Some of us would call that soda, right? Because it, depending on where we are from and the vernacular of the time. A lot of the reason that different words for elder or overseer or bishop uh, or pastor are used has to do on the geographical vernacular of the place where Peter or Paul or Jesus is talking. Right? But all of these three terms are synonyms for the leader that Paul is saying, put these in place. Now, if it is our desire as a local church to set straight what remains undone, to adorn, to fully adorn the Word of God in everything, we might want to start where Paul starts and look at the men, the leaders who are leading this local church. Now, 
If you go through our Constitution, you will not find the word elder in our Constitution. You will see deacons, you will see finance board, you will see deaconesses, uh, you will see trustees, you will see all, but you will not see elder. I'm just going to leave that there for you to chew on and wrestle with for a little bit. I do want today to let you know that this church does have shepherds, and I am thankful for the shepherds that this church has. Right now, there, there are deacons, but I refer to them as shepherds because they're my shepherd. I know they, I know they shepherd Scott and Katie. I, I know they do the things of shepherds for you. And right now, we have seven men who, are, who, are, who, who meet regularly, who pray regularly, who, who, it's not worry because worry is a sin, but they show concern over you regularly. And I just want us to lift these guys up. Brandon, as you saw on stage, and Randy Sturm, Ray Clow, Gary Sampson, Mike Reel, Mike Miller, and Nat Miller. These guys, these are godly men who have been called to shepherd this church. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you right now. Every year at this time, my heart hurts a little bit. Because the way that we are structured right now, every year we have to say goodbye to some names on this, this list. We force them to take a break from a calling that has been given to them by God. And, and we force them to take a seat. Now, it, so it breaks my heart, and I, I'm going to say this to you. I said it to the first service, that Gary Sampson, unless he wants to or unless God calls him home, should never be forced to take a break from shepherding this church. Ever. Right? Mike Real, Mike Miller, unless God calls them to something else, those guys should not be forced to ever lay down the mantle of being an overseer of this church. Now, should, does Gary need a break every once in a while? Yes, but that's between Gary and God. And it breaks my heart that every year, and I'm excited about next year's group of deacons who are coming on, and we're going to share with them. A, but, but wouldn't it be healthier for us that instead of rotating, that we go to, 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 our, elders and, to, our, uh, to our elders and say, do you need a break? Come back when you're ready. But instead of this rolling group of nine, wouldn't it be awesome if we had this growing group of godly men who were committed to leading us? who were praying over you, who were sharing in the teaching responsibilities, in the supervising responsibilities, in the shepherding responsibilities. And when Paul says right off the bat, set what's straight, and then the next words that flowed off of his quill were in appoint elders, I don't think we can ignore that church. And I, I do pray that you wrestle with that, that you, that you, you think about that, that you test me out on what I'm saying. Don't just take my word for it. Go to Scripture right, and see. And, and don't just go to your favorite texts. Look at the entirety of Scripture. Look at what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. Paul, Peter, James, John, everybody in the, in the writer of Hebrews. Look at the entirety of the New Testament to see what it says about how the church would be structured. It's been different over the years it can be different in different cultures, but there are two things that we see in the New Testament church, that it was founded upon the leadership of elders 
and deacons. And I just want you to wrestle with that. Now, before we, I don't want to leave you just with that, right? Because I want us to circle back to what we started with this morning. The idea that Jesus is our head and we are to image him in everything. And I believe that the, the leaders that we have right now in this season are doing that. But I want you to put yourself in that encounter in John chapter 21. I want you to put yourself, if you need to close your eyes to do that, I, I encourage you to do that because this is an encounter between Peter and between Jesus. And I can just picture Jesus you know, grabbing Peter by the cheeks or by the ears like you do when you want your kids to look at you so they're not missing what you're saying. And as he's holding his head and staring him in the eyes so he's paying attention to him, he asked him three times, do you love me? And we can understand if we don't know all the story why Peter would get upset. But we need to remember the last time that these two were this close to each other. It was Jesus, or it was Peter, three times saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. And it wasn't because some big burly dude or some self-righteous Pharisee was standing over him threatening him. No, the last time was because a servant girl said, hey, aren't you one of him? <laughs> and in, the, 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 in front of the servant girl, he denies Jesus a third time. I don't know him. And Jesus' eyes and Peter's eyes lock. And Peter realizes what he has done. And he runs away crying, weeping. So now, Jesus, who Peter, maybe from a distance, saw crucified, but this is the first time they've been back together, and I just see Jesus holding his face right in front of him, and that third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says back to him, feed my sheep. That's an image of me. That's an image of you. That's an image of what Jesus is for the church, is that type of shepherd. We're not talking about a shepherd who says one thing and sends us off to do something while he sits in the friendly confines of his office. No, he goes with us. If one of us is struggling, he leaves us all safely together, here together, and chases down that one. Some of us in this room today think that we have outsinned God's sacrificial love. I mean, you're, we look at a story of a guy like Peter who denied Jesus to Jesus' face in Jesus' presence. And here is Jesus pulling him back in. And he desires to do the same thing with you today. Jesus holding your cheeks in his hand, saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Come back.